offered and for the, the reading. It's just great to be able to worship our God together tonight at the close of this day. Um, Micah has a copy, if you haven't gotten it already, for the kids. Uh, I wanted you to be able to follow along, young people, and not have to scribble down your notes as rapidly, so I left you some blanks to fill in as we look over some things tonight. But the church is very important to God, um, and I want us to start our thoughts tonight by just reminding ourselves how important the church is, because the church is sometimes in our society held in, um, in uh, a low regard. Uh, there are people in our society who say they love Jesus but hate the church. You can't do that. There are other people who are showing low regard for the church in other ways. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the church is very important to God. It was purchased with Christ's blood. As, as Bar, or Ben just read for us in Acts 20, verse 28, the church was purchased with God's own blood. Christ's blood purchased the church. Now, when you go out and buy something, how much you pay for it shows you its value, doesn't it? You don't pay very much for some things, and you don't hold them in a lot of regard. The paper plates that you may eat your lunch on, you don't hold those in very much regard. But if you went out and bought a fancy piece of china, you'd be very careful with that. Christ purchased the church with his own blood. It's very important to God. And it is also part of God's eternal plan. In Ephesians chapter 9, Ephesians, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God had an eternal plan to redeem mankind and to bring the Gentiles in to his people. And the way that he was going to share that news is through the church. This is part of God's plan. Therefore, it's very important to God. And as we continue to think about why the church is so important to God and what shows us so it's so important to him, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And we understand how important a bride is to her husband. And the church is important to Christ, it is his bride. Wives, submit to your own husbands, Ephesians 5, beginning verse 23, as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The church is very important to God and to Christ. And as I said, there are some who hold it in low regard, say that they can love Jesus and hate the church. You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. You can't love Jesus and hate what he bought with his own blood. You can't love Jesus and hate what he, God intended to be part of his plan to redeem mankind. You can't do that. But I want to tell you, there are others who are showing just as much low regard for, that, for the church as these others. When they don't re, uh, structure the church like God intended it to be structured. When we say God gave a plan for how he wanted the church to be organized and, and set up. And when we disregard that, we show no regard for the church when we do that. 
I'll tell you, there are also other people who are showing no regard for the church by worshiping God any way that they please in the church. There are people who are worshiping God in ways that make them happy rather than the way that makes God happy. And God has given the church instructions on how he wants to be worshipped in the church. And when we just disregard that and throw that away and worship the way that we want to worship, it shows we don't show any regard for the church either. There's another way that I want to focus on tonight in how people are showing no regard for the church, and that is by getting the church engaged in work that is unauthorized. There are a lot of people in the religious world today that are getting churches involved in works that the Bible says nothing about. Works that are not according to God's plan. And when we do that, I want to tell you, we show no regard for the church. The church is very important to God. It was purchased with Christ's blood. It was part of His eternal purpose. It is Christ's bride. And therefore, we need to be very particular about the work that the church does. Because when we engage the church in things that are unscriptural and unauthorized, we show no regard for the church. And that is very dangerous. And tonight, I want to look at the authorized work of the church. What is the work that the church is to be involved in? But before we get into that discussion, we need to start with this very important fact that this is an issue about Bible authority. As we discuss what the church is to be involved in, this is going to break down into being just an issue of authority and how we establish authority from the Bible. And so I want to review that with you a little bit. I know it's a review for most all of us, but we need to understand what the Bible says about authority. First off, we know that authority is not established by our opinions. Our opinions have nothing to do with what's right and wrong. And people need to get that through their heads And people need to understand that because our society is very high on their thinking and their opinions. And our society has put their thinking on par with God's thinking. And sadly, many in the church have done the same. Put their thinking on par with what God thinks. And that is not the case. Our thinking has nothing to do with what's right and wrong. God's thinking does. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. What you think about it, brethren, quite frankly, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you can't direct your own steps. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Our thinking, our opinions don't matter. They don't establish authority. And as we have this discussion with people about what the authorized work of the church is, A lot of times you're going to hear those opinions start to come into the discussion, and they don't matter. We don't establish our authority from opinions. We also don't establish it from other men. Many times as we're talking about what is the authorized work of the church, people will reference other men, what other men have said the work of the church is, or what other men have done historically. The church has always done this or always done that, and therefore it must be right. Other men do not determine authority. Authority is established from God and Him alone. Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, And Jesus said, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What men may say. I don't care how many letters he has after his name or she has after her name. Or how long men have been doing this practice or how many men have been doing this practice, how widely accepted it is, that doesn't establish Bible authority. 
Authority is not established by other men. Furthermore, we need to understand that authority is not established by the Old Testament. The Old Testament, as Joseph highlighted for us last Sunday night, is just that. It is old. It has been done away with. And over and over again, we can look at the New Testament to find this principle established for us without question. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or of Sabbaths. The old covenant has been taken out of the way. It is not our standard of authority today. We can't go to the Old Testament and say, this is what they did in the Old Testament, so therefore that's what I'm going to do today. That covenant has been taken out of the way. Colossians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The Old Testament is not our authority today. And so, kids, I hope you're able to keep up with your fill-in-the-blanks. Authority is not established by our opinions, by other men, or by the Old Testament. Our authority, on the other hand, must come from Jesus. Jesus was very clear that he is our authority now. In Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17, beginning of verse 1, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Notice what we read here in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 beginning. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Jesus is our source of authority today. And as Jesus was about to leave this earth, notice what he said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the authority today. Jesus is where we must get our authority for all that we do. In fact, that's what we're commanded to do in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus or by his authority. Why? Because he has all authority, Matthew 28, 18. Because God said to hear him in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is our source of authority, and we must act within the authority that he's given us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And so our authority must come from Jesus. And so then how do we establish that authority from the Bible? How do I know when I go to the Bible what Jesus wants me to do because he has all authority and all that I do has to come from him? How can I open up this and know what Jesus wants me to do? How do I get that authority? I want to tell you, we get that authority just like we would get that authority from any other document or any other type of communication. And there are three ways that we understand what we should do with any type of communication. The first of those would be the, a direct command or direct statement. When the Bible says, do this or don't do that, 
then we have our authority right there. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. How do I know that God wanted me to worship with singing as Roland led us in tonight? How do I know that that's approved of God? How can I do that in faith, knowing that God is pleased by it? Right there it is, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. But there's other ways that we get these direct commands or statements. As I said before, when the Bible says don't do that, then we know that we shouldn't do that. For example, James chapter 2, verse 11. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. How should I know that I shouldn't commit adultery? Or that I shouldn't commit murder. And if I do either of those, I am in violation of God's will. James chapter 2, verse 11 tells me that. That's how I get that authority and that understanding. And so I can get my authority from a direct command or a direct statement. Do this or don't do that. I can also get my authority from a necessary inference. Or in another way we could put it as an unavoidable conclusion. When the Bible states some things and there is a conclusion that must be drawn from what it is saying, then that is a way that I can get authority. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 35, beginning. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 35, here's where we see a necessary inference being put into place. Matthew chapter 8, beginning verse 35, Then Peter opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? There are some conclusions that I have to make from this passage. I have to make a conclusion that when Philip preached to the eunuch about Jesus, he also preached to him about baptism. How would he know about baptism unless Peter had taught him about baptism? It doesn't say that he taught him about baptism, but I have to make that conclusion, don't I? Because the eunuch, when he saw water, said, oh, I need to be baptized. I have to make another conclusion about what Peter taught him about baptism. And that baptism was in water. There are a lot of people who say, well, you can be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and it's something else. But no, this was in water. And so Philip had taught the eunuch about baptism, and he had taught him that baptism is in water. And I can make some other conclusions and necessary inferences from this account of the eunuch as we, if we were to go on. But this illustrates some of those. We can get authority from these unavoidable conclusions or necessary inferences. And there's a third way that we can get authority. And that is by an approved example. If someone did something in the New Testament and their actions were approved of God, then I know that if I do the same thing, my actions will be approved of God. In fact, we're told that we need to do that. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul said, listen, I'm doing what I need to do here. And you need to follow me. And when you see other people who are doing the same thing as I'm doing, you can follow them as well. Follow those who are doing things that are approved by God. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. These things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Follow those approved examples, Paul says. That's how we get our authority. And so we establish our authority in three ways, by direct command. We follow, also get authority by necessary inference or unavoidable conclusion, 
and by approved example. Now, we would do that in everyday life. That's not just some kind of religious, biblical idea. We would do that in everyday life. If you go and you start a new job and you show up on the first day of the job and they're telling you how to, what they want you to do, you would understand how to work your job the same way, by a direct command. If the boss says, listen, on Friday you've got to do this, and when we start the week on Monday you've got to do this, there's your direct command. You know that that's what you're supposed to do on your job. And if your boss also gave you something to do, but he didn't give you all the details about that, but he said, hey, I need you to take out the trash on Friday. Well, you would know that you need to go and gather up all the trash from everybody's desk and do all those things. You would make an unav- a conclusion based upon what was said. And you would also look at other people on the job and see what they were doing. And if they took a break at 10 o'clock and they were out for 10 or 15 minutes and they, the boss was pleased with that, well, you'd say, well, it's, okay. it's a time to take a break at 10 o'clock. You would follow their example. These are ways that we get authority in our everyday life. And this is how we get authority from the Bible. We see this outlined for us as we look at the Lord's Supper. We see all three of these requirements for the Lord's Supper. For example, we see a direct command in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Jesus told us what he wanted us to partake of in the Lord's Supper, direct command or direct statement. But he didn't tell us then when we needed to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus never told us when to take the Lord's Supper. But I can understand when I should take the Lord's Supper by looking at an approved example of when disciples took the Lord's Supper in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to part the next day, spoke to them and continued his speech message until midnight. When did disciples take of the Lord's Supper? On the first day of the week. Paul joined in with them in that. Paul said, you need to do what I do. We need to follow that example. We need to take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. But you know what? I know now what I'm supposed to do. I know when I'm supposed to do it, but I don't know how often I'm supposed to do it. I learn what I'm supposed to do by that direct command. I learn when I'm supposed to do it by that approved example in Acts 20, verse 7. But nowhere have I seen how often I'm supposed to do that. I learn how often I'm supposed to do that by a necessary inference or an unavoidable conclusion. I understand that I ought to take the Lord's Supper and we're instructed to take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Why? Because there's no reference to a specific first day of the week in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. They came together on the first day of the week. And if there's a first day of the week, then I need to partake of the Lord's Supper then. And we go back to that new job. If you get a new job and you walk in on the first day and the boss tells you that payday is on Friday then you know that there should be a check waiting on you every Friday, don't you? Because no reference was made to a specific Friday. Now, if the boss said on the first Friday of the month is payday, then you would know you wouldn't see a check until the first Friday. But if he said the payday is on Friday, then you would know that that's when you need to expect your check. When they went to take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, we understand then there's no specific reference. Then it must be every first day of the week. 
I can also back up that conclusion by looking at other principles. For example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, in the Old Testament, it's not our authority today, but it shows how this principle is put into place. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In other words, remember the seventh day to keep it holy. What Sabbath days were they supposed to keep as holy? Well, every Sabbath day. Not just once a month or two times a year, in sometime in maybe in April and December. No, they were to take of the, keep the Sabbath holy every Saturday. And so it is with us with the Lord's Supper. But I have other reasons I can back up my unavoidable conclusion with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, similar language is used referring to our collection and our gathering. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. What first day of the week should I give of my means? Every first day. And so I can deter, determine as a result of direct statement or command, necessary inference or unavoidable conclusion, and approved example, I can understand what I need to do in regard to the Lord's Supper. And that's just one example of how we determine Bible authority. Before we go on, it's very important that we lay this groundwork as we're starting to talk about the authorized work of the church. We need to understand Bible authority and these fundamental principles. And kids, I hope you're getting your notes down because this is very important. And everything we do about reading the Bible is understanding how we get Bible authority. There's some more important things about Bible authority, and that is, number one, that there's a difference between generic and specific authority. When the Bible is specific, I want to tell you that's different than when it's just general. General authority gives us liberty in the particulars. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 again. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There is general authority here that we need to be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. General authority gives us authority to do that but there are particulars that are not specified. For example, which hymn, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? We've got some liberty. And Roland selected some for us this evening. He had some liberty in that. How many psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs should we sing? Wasn't specified. We're at liberty. Now, if God had said, sing 10 psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we'd have to sing 10, wouldn't we? But he's generic and general. We have some liberty Specific authority, though, limits us. When God gives particulars, we're limited in that. When God says He wants one thing, all other things are prohibited. God said He wants us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That would rule out humming songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. That would rule out playing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to sing when God specifies everything else is prohibited. For example, and all the kids know this story, when God told Noah to build an ark, he was specific, wasn't he, in what kind of wood he wanted him to use. And we all know what that wood is, don't we? Gopher wood. That excluded everything else. 
That means that Noah could not use pine or oak or whatever wood he wanted to use. He had to use gopher wood. And we need to understand that when God is specific, everything else is ruled out. Silence also is prohibitive, not permissive. When God is specific, he doesn't have to rule out everything else. Silence is prohibitive, not permissive. You know, there are a lot of people, we talk about singing, for example, would say, well, God didn't say not to play while I sing. When God specifies, he doesn't have to talk about everything else. He tells you what he wants, and you need to do that. Here's an example of where silence is prohibitive, not permissive. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. When God told the Israelites where the priest would come from, there was one tribe that was given, the tribe of Levi. Now, God did not specify all the other tribes and say you can't be a, uh, a priest if you're from the tribe of Dan or Asher or Issachar. Those tribes are prohibited. No, he just said if you're from the tribe of Levi, you can be your priest. De uh, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And the writer of Hebrews says, you know what? God didn't say anything about the tribe of Judah. Therefore, they couldn't be a priest. Silence is prohibitive, not permissive. God had specified where the priests came from, and they needed to leave it at that. And so, kids, I hope you have your, your blanks filled in on that page, and you can flip over to the other side now as we get to our topic at hand tonight. But I thought it was important that we establish these fundamental principles about Bible authority. So what about the authorized work of the church? I want to tell you, the, work, the church is authorized to work in three areas. Three areas where the church is authorized to work. The first of those is in the area of evangelism. Evangelism. The church is authorized and instructed and commanded to be spreading the gospel to those who are lost. The church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But if I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And the church has also been given that function from eternity. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. To the tent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is to be spreading and proclaiming the eternal purpose of God. God's plan of redemption. The church is to be spreading that. That's the church's charge. And we have examples of churches doing that in the New Testament. Approved examples of churches spreading the gospel. For example, the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The church at Philippi was helping Paul spread the gospel, and we need to be doing that as well. The church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. 
They were spreading the gospel from Thessalonica. The church is authorized to work in the area of evangelism. The church carries out this role of being evangelistic and spreading the gospel in part by supporting evangelists. And we see examples of that in the New Testament. We saw that in Philippi where they were in fellowship uh, with, uh, with Paul and other churches were in fellowship with Paul by supporting him in preaching the gospel. The church is authorized to do that. And we can support preachers here and around the world, and we should, and we are, helping to spread the gospel. But I want to tell you, as we look at how churches did that work, how they do the work of evangelism is also very important. And every example that we see of churches being involved in evangelism in the New Testament, the churches were in direct contact with the evangelists. There was no organization in the middle of that. There was no missionary society where all the churches sent their money to that missionary society and then that missionary society decided who was going to be supported and who wasn't. Where that missionary society decided where the gospel was going to be taught, uh, spread and where it wasn't going to be spread or how it was going to be spread. No, there was no middleman. There was nothing in between the church and the preacher. And there was no church in the middle of the church and the preacher. You know, there's some folks today who are saying, well, we can set up a sponsoring church. We'll all send money to the ch that church, and that church can decide who and where get, uh, the gospel gets spread to. No. The church was always in direct contact with the preacher. The church is also involved in edification. Edification. Edification is a fancy word, kids, but it simply means to build up or encourage or support. It is used in connection with spiritual activities that are involved in promoting spiritual growth. In Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4, notice as the church here is to work together towards this goal of edification or building itself up. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 11, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We are to be evangelizing, spreading the gospel to those who are lost. And that those who are saved need to be encouraged in their walk with the Lord, to be edified and built up. The church is to be both evangelistic and be involved in edification. And notice the various roles of the individuals that are listed here that are involved in carrying out this role and this job of edifying the church. And we edify one another by our time together in times like this when we meet together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're encouraging each other. We're edifying each other by our time spent together in assemblies like this. That was the goal of our assemblies, and that was where the church at Corinth was falling down on the job. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, How is it, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a, a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? 
Let all things be done for edification. The church is to be edifying itself. Evangelism, edification. And the third role and third work that the church has been given is in the role of benevolence. Benevolence, assisting the physical needs of people. That might be a need for food. It might be a need for medical assistance. It might be a need for shelter or clothing, assisting the needs of others. And the church is commanded to act in this area. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning of verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. The church at Corinth was commanded to be benevolent or addressing the physical needs of others. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16, the church is given this charge with respect to widows. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Church is to be relieving the physical needs of others. And we see numerous examples of that in the New Testament. In Antioch, in Acts chapter 11, verse 29, the disciples in Antioch, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They were worried about the needs of the brethren in Judea. They were sending to their needs. In Romans chapter 15, verse 25, But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. The church was commanded to be benevolent. We see examples of the church being benevolent. The church is authorized to work in the area of benevolence. But I want to tell you something. There's some specifics about that. Every example that we see of benevolence in the New Testament, of churches being involved in benevolence, that benevolence is limited to saints. Churches were only being uh, engaged in benevolent activity to those who are Christians. Every example we see of that. There's no other work that's authorized for the church other than the work that we've noted here. Evangelism, spreading the gospel to the world, Edification, building up the saints, and benevolence, seeing to the physical needs of saints and of Christians, is the work of the church. That's what we see from the New Testament. Now, there are many things that churches do in the religious world today that are not authorized. There are churches who are involved in every type of social ill our society might have. Whether that be hunger, whether that be disease and opening up hospitals, whether that be education and opening up colleges and universities and secondary schools, whether that be social injustice and social movements, the churches are involved in all types of activities like that. But the church is not equipped for that activity. The church is not authorized for that activity. The church is only authorized to act in these areas based upon what we read in the New Testament. And the church should not be involved in, uh, in uh, using physical enticements. There are a lot of churches around here. There's a church across the parking lot that is very adept at using physical enticements to get people to come to their assemblies. 
But we understand from looking at the work of the church that that is not in the realm of authority that God has given the church to be involved in enticing people with physical enticements. In John chapter 6, look at verse 5 beginning. In John chapter 6, verse 5, there are many people who will use this passage to say we ought to get people in by serving them some food and suggesting that that's what Jesus did in John chapter 6, verse 5 beginning. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what is that among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, and in the number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remained, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men who had seen uh, the sign that Jesus did said, Truly the prophet who has come unto the world. This, tr- this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus served them a nice meal. They had enough to eat, more, you know, all that they wanted. And some would say, well, you know, we ought to do that. You know, if we would open up a buffet, maybe a barley loaf and fish buffet, we could get a lot of people here. Maybe we ought to do that. Well, that's simply not the work that the church has been authorized to do because later on in John chapter 6, verse 24, they liked the food so much that when they found out that Jesus had moved on and where he was, they sought after him. And they went to great efforts to seek after him and find him and get up with him again. And Jesus rebuked them because they weren't coming for the right reasons. They weren't coming for the right reasons. Notice what he said at the beginning of verse 24. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Whoops. And when they found him uh, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the, uh, you seek, uh, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus was not going to use the lure of physical enticements to get people to come and listen to him. Churches all over this country are using physical enticements to get people to come and listen to the gospel. And I'll tell you, when we do that, When we use physical enticements, you know what it says? It says we don't believe in this. We have the power of God into salvation right here. This is what we ought to be able to use to bring people to God. Not a hot dog or a hamburger. When I say, well, I've got to have a hot dog or a hamburger to get people to come and listen, what I'm saying is this is just junk. Nobody would want this. Let's get them to come with a hot dog or a hamburger, and then we might be able to sell them this. Tells us we don't believe in the gospel. The church should not use physical enticements to get people to come. I want to tell you the church should also not be engaged in providing entertainment and recreation. Churches all over the countryside are doing this. Churches that claim to be churches of Christ are using a means to provide entertainment and recreation. I want to tell you this is unauthorized. 
You know, that again, shows, I think, that people don't understand the value of what we have right here. We have to somehow entice people to come with recreation or social uh, entertainment. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 34, Paul condemns the church at Corinth because they were coming together for common meals in the assembly. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 34, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Paul said you don't come together for common meals as a church. It's not the work of the church. That's the work of the home. You need to do that in your homes. Churches need to understand that. And I want to tell you as we conclude tonight that there's a difference between what the church can do and what the individual can do. There are some people who say that the church can do anything that the individual can do. That the church can be involved in any work that the individual is, is authorized to be involved in, the church can be involved in that. But the church is different than the individual. And there is a specific distinction made between what the individual can do and what the church can do. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Individuals are supposed to take care of their widows in need. If you have a mother who is a widow, you need to be taking care of your mother. That's what Paul is saying. He goes on in 1 Timothy and says this in verse 6 of chapter 5. If any believing man or woman has widows... Let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. There is a responsibility that I have, and that responsibility is not the same as the church's responsibility. I have a responsibility to do some things, and the church has some responsibilities to do some things. They're not the same. They're separate. They're distinct. And Paul says that very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 5. As individuals... We talked about benevolence, that the church is limited in its realm of benevolence. The church, we only see the church being involved in relieving the needs of saints. But individual Christians are commanded to relieve the needs of anybody. There's a distinction between the church and the individual. James chapter 1, verse 27. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There's no distinction here of which widows need to be taken care of. As an individual, individual Christian, I can take care of the needs of a believing widow or an unbelieving widow. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 would say this as well. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6 is a passage that's directed to individual Christians individual responsibilities that we have as Christians. And as an individual Christian, I should be doing good to all men. But the church is limited in its work of benevolence. The church is authorized to work in three areas and three areas alone. Evangelism, edification, and benevolence. There are no other authorized works for the church to be involved in. If someone were to come in and say, you know what we ought to do? We need to build a hospital. Because there are a lot of sick people in Franklin. We need to build a hospital. We'd say, no, that's not authorized. That's not the authorized work of the church. If someone were to come in and, and suggest something else, you know what? There are a lot of kids out there that are having to play basketball in the street, and it's dangerous. We ought to build a gymnasium so they can play basketball inside. That's not an authorized work of the church. 
The church needs to engage in just the work that God has authorized it to do because the church is of such importance to God. We need to honor God by engaging the church in only the work that God has authorized it to do. You remember back in the story of Nadab and Abihu? You remember when Nadab and Abihu did not do what God told them to do? And they offered that profane fire. God struck them dead. You know one of the first things he said after that? He said, I need to be regarded as holy. When Nadab and Abihu did not obey God, they disrespected him. They did not hold him as holy because they didn't honor his authority. And when we just do whatever we want to do without regard for God's authority, we're disrespecting God. We're not honoring him. We're not showing that we recognize him as holy. We need to be committed to just doing what the church has been authorized to do, having authority for all that we do. I hope the things that we've talked about tonight have been helpful. That's a review for most of us, but maybe for the younger people, there's some good things that we haven't heard before that we need to learn and we need to have at our disposal in our memory as we go forward. What about you tonight? You know, we talk about having authority for all that we do, and that's not just for in our work together as a church. That's in every aspect of our life. Are you living in submission to God's authority for you and God's will for you in every aspect of your life? If you're not, you're not honoring God like you should, and he'll hold you responsible for that. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, there's no better time than right now. If you're not living like you should, there's no better time than right now to make a correction to that. If we can help you, let us know while we stand and sing.